0: We're going to go way back in biblical history this morning. It's a tumultuous time in Palestine. In the year 931 B.C., the kingdom of Israel divided. Jeroboam ruled the northern part, ten tribes then called Israel. Rehoboam, who was the son of Solomon, reigned in the south over two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they became known as Benjamin. I'm sorry, in Judah. Uh, 2 Chronicles 12 ends with the death of Rehoboam and the coronation of Abijah, his son, to reign as king over Judah. In chapter 13, Judah wars against Israel, and God gives uh, Abijah and the army of Judah a great victory over Israel. Chapter 14 begins then with the death of Abijah. And we're introduced to his son, who becomes his successor. His name is Asa. And what I want to do this week and next is for us to draw out six application principles from his life and reign. So let's make our way to the book of 2 Chronicles chapter 14. If you've got a Bible in front of you there from the seat back, page 466. sixty-six. Second Chronicles chapter 14. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1, if you just follow along. 2 Chronicles chapter 14, verse 1. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son reigned in his place. In his days the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, and broke down the pillars and cut down the Asherim. And commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out all of the cities of Judah, the high place, and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we've sought the Lord our God. We've sought him and he's given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. Now here's the first principle that we're going to consider. Diligently maintain a cutting edge in your faith life, especially during times of peace. You notice it says that the land was at peace. There was no war. There was no conflict for 10 years. How remarkable that was in that day and time. And during this time of peace, Asa did two things. uh, Very early in his reign, the first was religious. The text says that as a leader, he directed the people towards God. And don't miss that because it would be so easy to overlook that. I mean, things are really going well. But Asa recognized that the job was not done. There were still idols in the land. And so he went about the task of rooting out their presence because he knew well of their tendency and their power to corrupt and to draw worship away from Yahweh. The second significant thing that Asa did was political military. He, He noticed it there that he improved readiness. It says that he built fortified cities in Judah. He said, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. Asa used the presence of peace to prepare for war. What's the natural thing to do during times of peace? Isn't it usually to relax one's guard? It's to begin to coast just a little bit here. So let's draw some applications out for us here. Uh, First, we must relentlessly pursue a very singular focus on God. He has to be the source and the goal of our affections, of our focus. We must diligently and vigilantly stand guard against those things that become idols in our lives. The first epistle of John in the New Testament was written to Christians, not to pagans. And how interesting it is then when he comes toward the end of that book, he says this, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Idolatry. It sounds so antiquated, doesn't it? It's a little old-fashioned. It conjures up in our mind images of natives, you know, in some faraway land that are bowing down and worshiping statues of stone and wood. But really, what is idolatry? In the book No God But God, editors Oz Guinness and John Seal write this, contrary to popular misconceptions, the idols against which the Bible warns are not simply the concerns of others, those pagans, and the obvious crudity of their object of worship, their gods of wood and stone. In the biblical view, anything created, anything at all that is less than God, and most especially the gifts of God, can become idolatrous. If it's relied upon inordinately until it becomes a full-blown substitute for God, and thus an idol. They go on to say that anyone or anything that lays claim to our heart's confidence, attention, and loyalty may grow into a point of reliance apart from God and eventually may become a full-blown substitute for God. The challenge for our time, they say, is the recovery of the living reality of the gospel, including the all-sufficiency of the one true God over against the self-sufficiency of our modern age. What's the very first of the Ten Commandments that God gave to, to the people on Mount Sinai? You shall have no other gods before me. It speaks of divine superiority, divine uniqueness, divine exclusiveness. There are several meanings involved in that Hebrew word before, according to Old Testament scholars. Uh, It means instead of. Have no other gods instead of me. This means no substitute for God. Nothing that will replace God as the object of our worship, of our allegiance. Nothing that takes the place of God. It also can mean in front of have no other gods in front of me. It was said in the Hebrew culture that that if if a man really wanted to put down his wife, he would bring another woman with him into her presence and stand with her in front of his wife, before his wife, the ultimate put down. And so God says, listen, I don't want anything in my presence that will be a personal affront. I don't want anything here in terms of competition. And it also means in addition to. Have no other gods in addition to me. God requires exclusivity because you can be sure that those other gods will eventually smother. They will will put God down. They will move him out of the center of your focus. The reformer Martin Luther said, whatever then your heart clings to, whatever your heart relies upon, that is properly your God. And what a caution it is for us Living in a world where these things are so subtle. Let me me just list, if I may, a few of the more subtle, dare I say, acceptable, even commendable idols in our midst today. Legalism. Uh, Lofty ideals like love and loyalty. Self-esteem. Health and fitness. Work. Work political activism, winning and succeeding, being or doing something significant, recovery, intellectual prowess, discipline, recreation, hobbies, orthodoxy, wholeness, wellness, Now listen, none of those things in and of themselves are bad or wrong. In fact, for the most part, they are very good. But here's the problem. It's when they become the object of our affection, when they become the focus to the exclusion of God and things of the Spirit. Is it possible that in this age of affirmation and feel-goodism, that we've often become more pampered, spoiled believers, incapable of or unwilling to really engage God as the sole focus of our affections. See, Asa demonstrates well here an example of one who sought to get rid of idols for himself and for his nation. So what might we do in a practical way? To be on the lookout for those things that run the risk of becoming idols. Well, let me suggest some things. First, take some time to reflect on those things that are vying for your attention. Identify those things in your life that are creeping up more and more to be the focus of your life. Are they crowding out God? Have have they become more important in your life than God himself? And then I think second, we need to take a firm step of putting them into their proper place. Yeah, you're not going to stop working. You're not going to stop relating to other people. You're not going to give all your possessions away. But how might you guard yourself against those things becoming your God? You may have to make some tough decisions about how you spend your time and how you spend your money and where your focus is and where your heart is on these things. Above all, cultivate, grow your relationship with God. Spend time with Him in His Word. Talk to Him. Engage with God during the course of the day in your thoughts. Find yourself thinking about God and what He wants in your life. Choose to not become enslaved to those things that so easily become idols. The second application of this principle that I want you to consider is that we must actively pursue preparedness in preparation and anticipation of spiritual conflict, of life's battles, of the onslaught of temptation and sin. The tendency in times of relative calm, personally, is to breathe a sigh of relief. And then we stop pedaling and we coast. We relax. We let our guard down. And all of a sudden, there's this danger of being ambushed. There is the danger of being overwhelmed and overrun by the next siege of life. We run the risk of being blindsided by temptation. Why? Because things are just floating. Things are going well. It's easy just to think that there's nothing to this. Look at Paul's exhortation in the letter of Ephesians chapter 6. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Did you notice that Paul says and admonishes us to put on our armor, the armor of God, before the battle? It doesn't do a whole lot of good to put it on after. And even during. So dress yourself for battle as you go out in the morning before you start your day. Build your spiritual strength. It isn't really a a question of if storms are going to come, right? They will. It's called life. And so if you find yourself in relative ease at this point, you know, with things that are happening in your life, don't neglect continuing to build your faith because you'll need it when those storms come. Now, before moving on, I want you to see the key to Asa's blessings. It's mentioned in verse 2. It says that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. I think a part of that is that Asa lived with a sense of God's presence. All that he did was done with a view to God's scrutiny. God's eyes were on him. You know, what effect would there be in your life if you lived with this sense of the presence of God? My mom used to tell me many times when I was growing up, boy, she would ask me a question. She would say, would you want to be doing that if Christ came back today? Now, you talk about what puts the fear of God into a little guy. It probably kept me out of a lot of trouble. But we need to make a conscious choice that we are going to live in God's presence. In fact, the reality is He is present everywhere, all the time. So cultivate the habit of being mindful that God is with you, that He is right beside you, that He is there to guide you and to guard you during the day. So one effect here we're talking about is to diligently maintain a cutting edge in your faith life. Here's the second thing, a second principle that I want to draw. God delights in manifesting his power through weak people. Let's go back to the text, Second Chronicles chapter 14. I'm going to start reading at verse 9. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Merishah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help us between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we've come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. And when they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels, and then they returned to Jerusalem. As we read these verses, we see Asa's first national military crisis. And what's the first thing that he did? He drew up his army. Hey, that was just common sense. There's nothing wrong with that. God wants us to use common sense. And then he prayed. And there are three significant things about this prayer. The first is there was an acknowledgement of God's power and their weakness. Asa said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. But wait a minute. This guy's a king. Look back at verse 8. It's not like he has no resources. 300,000. Large shield, 280,000 from Benjamin. He's got a good-sized army. But there's no presumption on his part. There's no John Wayne bravado here. He clearly saw and expressed their impotence in the situation. As long as you possess a self-confidence that says, I can do it myself. I don't need you, God, on this one. I got it. Thank you. God cannot nor will not display his power through you. If you're standing out there alone by your choice, he's going to let you be there. Someone has said you never know Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been at that point in your life where there was no other, there was no human explanation. There was no human way out. Some of you know what it means to go to the Lord and say, God, I can't do anything. I need you. That's, that's Asa here. Certainly the Apostle Paul understood that. If you keep your finger here in Chronicles, but turn to the New Testament to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. If you've got a seat back Bible, 1225. This is a book about suffering. If if you're going through difficult times, go to 2 Corinthians. There's a lot to be seen there for you. 2 Corinthians, let's just kind of make our way through and look at what Paul writes. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Look over at chapter 4, starting at verse 7. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Let's go ahead to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 30. Paul says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Drop down to chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, where he says, But he said to me, it is God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We live in a time, we live in a city, in an area where strength is what's valued. Weakness is frowned upon. In fact, it's disdained. It's viewed as being impotent. It's viewed as being something terrible. And yet we discover a principle in our spiritual lives that we experience God's power most when we are most weak, when we have no strength, when we have no power to make things right or change. One of the songs that I learned early in my childhood, which has a very adult meaning, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Maybe we need to go back and become like children and learn some of those truths again. Now, not only was there an acknowledgment of God's power, but there was an expression of trust. Notice what he says, Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. What a great prayer. The motto on our coins say, In God we trust. Maybe we should have an act of Congress that amends this to say, In this we trust. In God we trust. That's... Do you find it difficult at times in your life to trust God? I certainly have. It really helped me to understand some things. Reading a book by Jerry Bridges, the title was Trusting God. Listen to what he writes. It often seems more difficult to trust God than to obey Him. The moral will of God given to us in the Bible is rational and reasonable. The circumstances in which we must trust God often appear irrational and inexplicable. The law of God is readily recognized to be good for us even when we don't want to obey it. The circumstances of our lives frequently appear to be dreadful and grim or perhaps even calamitous and tragic. Obeying God, he writes, is worked out within well-defined boundaries of God's revealed will. Trusting God is worked out in an arena that has no boundaries. We do not know the extent, the duration, or the frequency of the painful adverse circumstances in which we must frequently trust God. We are always coping with the unknown. Asa had no knowledge of what the outcome of the battle would be. He had no guarantee ahead of time. His trust was not based upon prior knowledge of the outcome. Because if that were known, he wouldn't have had to trust. That's the experience of the three Hebrew men in Babylon. You remember their story? They refused to bow down and to worship the image that had been made of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so when they appeared before the king and it was said to them that they were demanded to submit to the king's decree and bow down and worship this statue, and if not, they would be thrown into the furnace, here's how they answered him. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter how you suppose that sat with the king. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They didn't know what the outcome was going to be. They hadn't read the book yet. It hadn't been written. They didn't know. Uh, They had no guarantee they wouldn't be consumed with fire. But their trust in God governed their actions. King David had the same perspective on trust. Notice what he writes. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Listen, you don't know what tomorrow's going to hold. You don't know what the outcome is going to be of something that's going to come into your life. But God does. And he says, I want you to trust me. That's what Asa did here. The third thing we notice in Asa's prayer is that there is an acknowledgement of roles. He says, in your name, Lord, we've come out against this army. Oh, Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Interesting, isn't it, that Judah still had to fight? Their role was to trust and to fight. It was God's role to give them the victory. You see, there's this tension that we have in living the Christian life. There are two extremes. One says it's only God. The other says it's only me. And if I understand scripture right, both are wrong because that's not the way God works. God says this is, this is a unique partnership. When we come into a relationship with him, it's, it's this, this mystery, if you will, at least it is to me, this partnership in our spiritual journey. Paul captures this in his words in Philippians chapter 2 when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Set that over here on the shelf by itself, and you just have a work salvation and a work sanctification. Don't do that. Because he gives you the reason for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God has his role and responsibility, and you have your role and responsibility. And if we confuse our role with his, we are destined for failure. We'll never please him. Nor will we ever see him work in and through us. Now, I've been noodling on that, and and I've come up with some diagrams. And um, so, let's see. I don't think it's this. I don't think, here's my role, and here's God's role, ne'er the twain shall they meet. Nor do I think it's this, that they simply overlap, you know, and I've got to shade in the overlap area. I don't think it's that either. I think it's it's a different way of thinking. I think it's more like this, that my role and my efforts are all within the sphere of, within the context of God's role. So that His Spirit uh, circumscribes all that I'm doing. I'm working in the context of His will, in the sphere of the Spirit who is at work in me. So the first two principles from Asa's life, we must diligently maintain a cutting edge in faith. We must find in our weakness God's strength and his power all that he might live his life through us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just give you a summary thought of all that we've considered. I think the key to everything here is engaging with God. Or maybe there's another way of saying it, and it is to, it is to um, encounter God on a consistent basis. You know, this summer is going to be a great time to do that. And uh, our whole summer focus is going to be on the Gospel of Luke. We're going to live in Luke's Gospel during the summer. And so we're going to have a reading program that'll take you through. If if you dive in with us, you'll be reading something every day and and we'll be going through the gospel. Uh, The Sunday messages will always be on something that you're going to be reading that week. So maybe I can give you some things to be looking for. Uh, We're going to be talking about journaling. Some some ways of writing down and and questions that'll help you as you interact with the text. We're going to have Wednesday nights again for interaction time. It's a time to come and share what you're learning. What is God teaching you as you're in the text? It's a great time to ask questions and, and to dialogue together, to learn in community. So there's a lot that's coming this summer. You're going to hear more about it in the coming weeks. But it's an opportunity for us to engage God. That's the key. That's what Asa did. That's what we need to do. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you reveal truth to us. And you help us then to translate the truth in that day, in those situations, into our own personal lives that we might grow in our relationship with you. And so I thank you for what we've seen today of Asa's life. Lord, would we do what is good and right in your sight this week? Would you help us to live with a sense of your presence, that we would be mindful of how you are there with us, walking with us through any difficulty we may face. You are there to guide us in our decisions. You are there, Lord, to help us to love people as we ought to love them, to do things in a spirit of excellence that reflects well on your character. And Lord, may we continue to be people who love you and love others. For Christ's sake and in his name I pray, amen.